and local eggs, milk, cheese, and baked goods. And, of course, cooking basics and tools of the trade for everyone at home. Home Goods of Margaretville. Open every day. 845-586-4177 or hgom.net. FNBC Construction and Cleaning in Margaretville. For commercial and residential construction, cleaning, repairs, and maintenance services for houses, apartments, offices, universities, restaurants, warehouses, and supermarkets. FNBC Construction and Cleaning. 917-686-0283. 917-686-0283. Or fnbccorp.com. The Catskill Revitalization Corporation, home of the Catskill Scenic Trail, along the old rail bed from Roxbury to Bloomville. With its wide path, gentle grade, and durable surface, the Catskill Scenic Trail is designed for year-round outdoor recreation. Hiking, biking, running, horseback riding, and during snow season, snowshoeing and cross-country skiing. Details at CatskillScenicTrail.org. This is Dan O'Connell, host of Monday Morning Music on WIOX Roxbury. As a WIOX spokesperson, I also manage underwriting for the station, and I'm here to let you know that underwriting on WIOX is a great way to support the station and inform the community about your business or service. If you'd like to become an underwriter, contact me for details at 607-326-3900 or WIOX at WIOXradio.org. Listening to WIOX Community Radio Live and Local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20, 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi and everywhere at WIOXradio.org on computers or smartphones. This is from the forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest related topic with Ryan and John. John, how's it going? Things are good. What's going on with you, Ryan? 
Uh, I don't know that much. I'm looking at the forecast because last year this time I had already tapped maple trees. Yeah. But yeah. Um, that doesn't look warm enough. It's not incredibly cold, but uh, it looks like the last three days or so of uh, the 14-day forecast look like they are looking wintry. Hmm. Like they might not get above 32. Okay. Yeah. So no go on tapping trees yet. And I can see, yeah. At least that'll bring me halfway into January. So uh, who knows? Maybe we'll wait until February. I don't know. <laughs> Last year was perpetual maple sugaring season. I don't know if you remember, but three months, January through uh, March, was pretty much 40s, 30s during the day and below freezing at night. Cool. Well, um, I don't know. What do you look? Is there something you'd rather have early or late season? Normal season? Well, if it was up to me. Yeah. February. Okay, so yeah. it's looking like it might pan out for... We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, February would be nice. Cool. Yeah. You know, March is... I don't know. It's getting late. Yeah. <laughs> but On other things. Firewood, man. I haven't really burned much of anything. Holy cow. I look at my pile and it's like... I don't know. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't... I, I have not burned much. No. No. Nope. Uh, last year, I burned the least amount ever, and we'll see how this year, this year goes. It's too early to say, obviously, but uh, I think last year I burned two cords and an eighth. I was on par with you. Two point two five, two and a quarter. Yeah, cords. I mean, it's not statistically it's the same. Right, We're measuring wood. <laughs> we, uh, you know, yeah, we have very similar sized houses too. Yeah. So there you go. But, um, yeah, we got a full show tonight. We're going to be talking about uh, Ignition with Maura O'Connor. Um, she has reported, she's an author, and she has reported for publications, including The New Yorker, Nautilus, I don't know how to say that, Slate, Foreign Policy, and Harper's. She's a graduate of Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. Um, she earned the 2017 Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT. She's the author of Wayfinding, The Science and Mystery of How Humans Navigate the World. And uh, let me see if I can get Maura on the line here. Maura, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. All right. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm a huge fan of the show, so pretty excited to be here. Yeah, so um, thank you for listening. But, you know, I, you ended up sending me one of your books there, and Ignition, Lighting Fires in a Burning World. And I have to say it was excellent. I mean, it takes me usually anymore with the kids, I don't know, four months to eight months to read a book. It's pretty <laughs> pathetic now. It used to not take that long. But I read that in about a week. So it was pretty good. That's a good yeah, that's a great compliment. <laughs> I can relate. Oh, uh, yeah. So... Where you know before we get into stuff, you know, just describe you know where you're from and whatnot, and, and where you live and all that. Like you know, where are you calling us from? Yeah, well, I'm. Um, I live in Brooklyn, um, in Brooklyn, New York. But uh, about four years ago, I um, became the owner of a, a little cabin up in Willow, New York, in the Catskills, and uh, became a member of the Catskill Forest Association. So I've been listening to this show the last four years and just like educating myself on the ecology of the Catskills and um, you know figuring out ways to manage my own little piece of land up there and um, that coincided with this other interest of mine in fire ecology and uh, becoming a qualified wildland firefighter so I could participate in these prescribed burns and write about them as a journalist 
Um, so yeah, right now I kind of split my time between the city and and uh, and Willow. <laughs> so I mean, how did you come to get interested in fire? How did that happen? It was a completely serendipitous, unplanned uh, event in my own career. I I do write a lot about science and natural history, but I happened to be traveling in Australia of all places um, and saw for the first time some recently burned uh, eucalyptus forest, uh, gum tree, as they call them, um, in Australia. And I was just kind of horrified by it. It just looked really disastrous to me and kind of ugly and I asked some people you know what why the land had been burned um, I assumed it was a wildfire and people explained to me that um, it had been intentionally burned and that actually um, the Aboriginal community in that area loved and took a lot of pride in the way the land looked after it had been managed with fire um, and so it just kind of flipped a lot of assumptions I had about um, nature and culture and fire and, you know, human history on its head. I started realizing that this wasn't something that was unique to Australia, but the practice of intentional burning for landscape management, um, whether of plants, uh, wildlife, um, forest composition, is something that is um, almost worldwide. And, uh, and certainly uh, is also something that has happened in North America for eons. And so it just became this fascinating story to me that I wanted to go deeper and deeper into and explore. Well, I'm curious as to what the goal was in the eucalyptus forest. What were they trying to manage for in return? Um, I think that a lot of it is um, it, it's kind of, making it look clean, <laughs> which is really interesting. So I don't know in specifically in the Northern Territories where I was at that time, um, what specific plants or animals they were managing for, but in general, they would have been maintaining the tree stand density. Uh, so creating a very open stand structure, um, which helps with visibility uh, in hunting. Um, and then all kinds of varieties of plants um, particularly in Australia, are, are fire adapted, if not fire dependent. And so um, if you want to attract a certain kind of wildlife to a place you might burn um, for, you know, certain types of plants that, that wildlife uh, wants to, to eat. Um, and so, yeah, and then also wildfire prevention. I mean, um, you know, there's a quote I have in the book where uh, this, uh, Aboriginal man is talking about these terrible destructive wildfires that were sweeping through Australia in the 80s and um, was saying, you know, we didn't have fires like that because we took care of our land. So certainly today when we, you know, see the news and we're being socked in with smoke in the Catskills and in Brooklyn, um, you know, there's something wrong there because that's not actually... Uh, necessarily something natural that's the result of a policy um uh, towards fire use and fire suppression that we've had for over a century yeah i mean maybe they're both unnatural it's just that this is bad maybe having all these fuels right. build up you know i mean that gets kind right. of the wilderness thing like why do you think 
most people don't even realize maybe that Native Americans burned in North America. Do you, do you think that's true or not? Oh, I absolutely think that's true. I think people, um, well, I think the fact that even many of our landscapes, like an estimated 80% of North American vegetation has some kind of fire regime or fire adaptation. Um, I think that notion of a fire-dependent ecology is, is really novel to most people, let alone the fact that humans, um, for many thousands of years, understood that and then used it to their own uh, advantage and sort of cultural objectives. Um, it certainly was new to me, uh, and I think that you know, there's a really interesting sort of backstory in the book about um, certain anthropologists who sort of discovered this uh, fact accidentally. And for many decades, you know, the research wasn't really appreciated. It was only till the 1960s or so that there was this movement to create a science of fire ecology and really understand the way that not only nature but humans uh, need and use fire in, in such important ways. Yeah, you, you've uh, you've got me reading. I found out about it through your book, which is Forgotten Fires by uh, Forgotten Fires Native American and the Transient Wilderness by Omar Stewart. He was writing this stuff in the forties and fifties as an anthropologist. Yeah, earlier. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, he's just a fascinating character. You know, he just describes how he was interviewing this um, Pomo man in Northern California who just pointed at this hillside and said that that didn't used to look that way. We used to hunt that. We used to burn there. Um, and now it's just totally ruined because it had become overgrown. They weren't allowed to burn anymore. And it just set off this, you know, 50-year process of him collecting as many anecdotes and firsthand testimonies from, from people about their burning practices. And it's kind of a sad story. It wasn't his you know, research wasn't published until after his passing. Um, but that's a fantastic book. And that concept of, of transient wilderness is so fascinating. I think fire challenges a lot of ideas that we have and distinctions that we make between nature and humans. And that's something that I loved about reporting this book was just how it challenged my ideas and my um, these binaries that I had grown up with and created about how humans fit into the natural world and that somehow there's a separation there um, conceptually and I think fire just shows that's not true oh it's huge um, you know John has a wildlife background I have a forestry background and I could say that it, it's taught in schools that you know, tree vegetation grows where it does due to soils and, and climate and, and rainfall. And, yeah, that is true in some ways, but they ignore humans to a huge degree, especially right. Native American burning, even burning up to the 1940s in some place by, by what I call mountain Americans, but that's different. Maybe we'll get into that later. But um, ecology. Ecology right. just talks about soils and... and, and uh, Again, all those things I just previously mentioned, but they, they never mention human influences in the past, you know? Right. And that was Omer Stewart's point was you look at the, something like the prairie um, in the Midwest and 
why does it look that way? Why why does it have the range that it does? Why what prevented woody encroachment for as long as it did? Um, and it just sh- provides this overwhelming evidence that humans not only played a role in maintaining the prairie, but potentially even expanding it um, and using. Um, you know, burning the hills so that the buffalo would go there to to eat the new grass, and and then you know could be hunted. And so there's this this way in which the fiction of wilderness has served, I think, certain interests. But in fact, um, when you really look at the the natural history and the anthropological record, um, people played a direct role in many of of the American landscapes. And beyond, you know, around the world. Yeah, I'm. I'm still reading Omer Stewart's book, but he he keeps repeating like that he'll cite all these other research done from the late 1800s up until when he was around 1950s or so. But he'll say, you know what? If I'm wrong, then then why do they instantly go to trees as soon as they stop burning? <laughs> right. Exactly. And that that to me is the bottom line, right? I mean, Wisconsin right. was open land. Yeah. Right. Right. So I don't know. I think the fact that so much of um, you know forest in America is is overly dense um, and present in places that it wasn't before, and that in fact one of the major issues is you know losing open spaces and, and losing grasslands and meadows is is kind of a surprise to many, um, and I think that's an interesting thing in the Catskills too. Um, you know when you walk through the woods and. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about what was open and, and what's enclosed now simply because people haven't been, you know, playing a direct role in managing that, that place. I mean, you're challenging a big paradigm there. I mean, I remember being a little kid and we, we'd fantasize about, romanticize whatever about the past. Like, right? well, you think that sure. this, this place was like, and, and as a kid, you'd imagine that it was completely densely forested. Did you, John? Yes. And now I think completely opposite. I actually think that the Catskills had a lot more balds, open areas, a huge amount of um, blueberry barrens with pitch pines and blazes, mm-hmm. a lot more oak hickory and chestnut, and a lot more grasslands in the alluvial soils especially. But that's just a complete guess. Mm. I don't know. What do you think, Laura? What do you think, John? Well, I mean, it's like, <laughs> at what point is the right point to go back to, right? I don't know. I, I, we don't, we're never going to know that. But, I, yeah, you got to strike a balance somewhere, no? I, don't, I mean, it's like, okay, is the maple forest we have today bad? I don't know if it's bad. It's just a, a matter of what you want. You know, we just have so many diseases in our forest and ticks and stuff. And I wonder well, if I that's think a product. I yeah. think everything in, in a single type is bad. I mean, nature nature wants to be this diverse landscape right and to prevent some of that is wrong yeah um i don't know mara what do you think i think john your point is exactly kind of what i spent a lot of time in the book talking to people about which is fire is this really interesting and and powerful tool for increasing biodiversity and um and that's so fascinating to me that um it has that that capability so you know even like a wildfire um that burns in a forest doesn't just burn everything down to the ground it creates what they call this kind of like mosaic pattern of different burn severities creates creates openings 
Um, you know, and so, and that diversity happens to benefit oftentimes the most, you know, the largest number of, of different um, species types and, and plants and, and wildlife. And then, um, you know, also can benefit humans. So I think that uh, it makes a lot of sense. And when you look at the Catskills, you know, I guess, yeah, you could say from a completely like neutral perspective, it's not bad or good, but, um, but does it, what forms of life is it, is it helping to flourish? You know, and you, and you could say that some of the heterogeneity of, of the forest today, um, this messification of, of the forest in New England and, and other places on the, the East Coast uh, isn't great for that, isn't great for diversity. And we're losing a lot of oak um, as a result. So is that what we want? You know, and that's the question. I think we've lost a lot of oak. <laughs> we've lost chestnut for sure to other reasons. But, yeah, I think right. I think places that we'll never know. But, again, I'm just guessing here. Just uh, We're just talking. I, I think places that are today, maple, beech, and birch, were probably once maybe oak hickory and maybe even blueberry. We There's four, like Pakataka Mountain in Margaretville. Right. That's a, that's a north-facing slope, I believe, in, in places at least. It's maple, beech, birch. There is some white oak in there in places. There is some hickory, and there's an understory of lowbush blueberry to this day. How did that lowbush blueberry get there? That's a that's a shrub that needs one to five year fire frequency. It's growing; it'll never fruit. But to me, that's a legacy. That's a remnant of when the Native Americans were down in the East Branch Dell, were burning the bejesus out of the hillside. Sure. Not to mention, I mean, people ask me all the time where they could go to find chestnut. I'd send them up on that mountain for a hike. You know, it's yeah. easy to find a chestnut sprout up there. You have to go far, and that would be on the northwest side. Yeah, north north northwest side. slope. Yeah, right. In forestry school, it's not supposed to be there. That should right. be all maple, huh. ginseng, trillium. Yeah, I- why not? There's some fantastic, you know, research looking at um, the flammability of, of American chestnut forests, and, and it just would have burned so much easier. You know, even the way the leaves were, and you know, it it, it was conductive to burning. And and I always, you know, in in my own book, I refer to um, Michael Kudish because he has such great uh, information in in his book on the Catskills about like why do we see these sort of tendrils of chestnut oak presence in certain parts of the Catskills. And, of course, he, you know, argues, well, it's because people wanted those trees to grow there. So even in New England, the history feels further removed, but there's evidence all around us in the pollen record and in, in tree stumps and, you know, of of people burning intentionally. Uh, and it's, it's just so fascinating to look at the landscape and realize what you're really seeing is, is human history. Yeah, and in places like where where people in the Catskills have burned, like we know they did up till the 1940s, the Shangham Ridge would be the best example. And um, right. Ashokan High Point, people, the, you know, what I call mountain Americans, which are pretty much, a lot of them are gone. They are gone. And they used to burn. Like I've been told the Barringers would burn Ashokan High Point in the town of Olive for blueberries. Right, you know, right. That's what they did, and to keep it open. And to this day, there's still an opening there 
So that can be true on a lot of mountains. Cherrytown Mountain, the whole escarpment, Overlook Mountain near Woodstock is another great example. That whole escarpment area, to me, was burned heavily at one time by Americans. I think, I think that's important to, to realize also there's not just a complete separation from, you know, when North America was um, colonized, so from fire to no fire once, you know, settler colonialists. Yeah, I uh, came here. There's a, a continuum there. And, you know, it's like, I think my own grandpa used to burn, right? Like, um, so some of these changes have been um, more recent, you know, it wasn't 400 years ago, it might have been 100 years ago, but certainly in the last 100 years, almost entirely across the, the United States, except potentially pockets of the southeast, um, pockets of indigenous communities who maintained these fire lighting traditions. Um, there's been a cessation of fire from the landscape. And so, you know, part of the book is really looking at the fires that we're seeing today, these, these mega fires, and saying, okay, um, these aren't just natural disasters. These are the result of a policy. And how can we really... Um, resurrect some of these traditions for the health of our of our landscapes and because it brings us closer to those those places as well um to care for them in this way so that's a really good segue um into fire culture and if you're just tuning in you're listening to from the forest and tonight's topic is ignition with author maura o'connor so i mean we talked a little bit about challenging that paradigm humans in the past but then working with fire um I thought that was really interesting that you, you know, you got firsthand experience with people both suppressing fire and prescribing fire. So, yeah, let's go into the culture of, uh, first of all, how you did that. How, how did you get qualified to become a wildland firefighter? Well, I started in the midst of the pandemic. So, um, you know, there's certain courses that are required in order to get uh, qualifications like you know, minimal qualifications that basically would make you a rookie on a crew. And I did most of that online, um, which, you know, wasn't necessarily ideal, but it was the route that was available to me when, like, a lot of us were still on lockdown and stuff. Um, and then I started going out to sort of training events. I, the first place I went was Nebraska um, to burn for two weeks in the spring on the prairie. And the purpose of those burns was really to support local ranchers, um, support, support biodiversity of, you know, grasses and um, in, in that place and also prevent the encroachment of uh, eastern red cedar, which is sort of gobbling up, you know, thousands of acres every year of, of the prairie. And so the goal is to try to kill, kill those little saplings when you can. Um, and what's really interesting about fire culture is just, you know, I went out to Nebraska, and there's a bunch of wildland firefighters lighting fires intentionally. So me being a total, you know, newbie to to this culture, like, I did never really appreciated that wildland firefighters are some of the most knowledgeable people about fire behavior, the, the ecological necessity of good fire, um, and just the tools and practices of how to use fire in a controlled way for ecological benefit. And so it seems kind of counterintuitive, but yeah, a lot of wildland firefighters in the off season are, are out down in Florida or North Carolina or, you know, lighting intentional fires for, for the good of these landscapes. 
Um, and so the tools that you use and the, the knowledge that you need to bring to prescribe burning is there's a huge overlap with also wildland firefighting um, that you know takes place every fire season in the summer. So, I mean, describe more about actually what you did. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, were they just letting fire escape across the pasture? Like, what did you have to do? In the prairie, in Nebraska? Yeah, in your Nebraska experience. Yeah, in Nebraska, it's, it's pretty wild because um, you're burning fairly large, you know, units, like hundreds of acres a day, potentially. Um, let me just say that, you know, this type of work is insanely fun, which I think is also maybe a surprise to people. Um, you know, you're with a crew and uh, you're basically creating uh, perimeters around a box, um, a unit that you want to burn, and you're paying attention to weather and wind and humidity um, and all of these different variables and burning within a prescription. So you want to have a very controlled fire that, um, you know, is burning exactly at the rate and intensity that you want to achieve your ecological objectives. And then you're using the crew um, to not just start those fires, but also make sure they don't escape that perimeter that you've established. And so that's kind of the basic idea. Um, and it's just, it's super fun. You're, you know, you're with a group of people who are sharing an objective. It's hard work, but you're kind of in it together. And, um yeah, it's a heck of a lot of fun. And uh, and one of the cool things about prescribed burning um, that's happening these days is that communities are really, you know, together recognizing the need to manage landscapes in this way um, and also prevent often, you know, out west, uh, these really threatening wildfires in, in the summer. And so they're coming together um, to burn and they're, incorporating people of all ages, backgrounds, levels of experience. I've burned with kids. Uh, I've burned with people in their 70s. Um, you know, so there's a sense that this shared objective of, of ecological health um, is quite unifying and, and very positive work, and I think that's part of the fun of it as well. Did you ever graduate towards wildland fire, or were you stuck with prescribed burning? So I started out wanting to write about people doing prescribed burning, um, people in these communities, um, in these different landscapes in the Southeast, the Midwest, um, out West in California. But yeah, eventually, um, because of the connection of fire suppression to the wildfires that we're seeing, you know, uh, during the summers, um, I felt like I needed to also write about that part of the work. So I did, um, join a crew, uh, a suppression crew um, on the Dixie Fire and interviewed a lot of wildland firefighters about their experiences fighting mm -hmm. fires over the last 10, 20 years. And, yeah, those were really moving uh, and intense experiences as a journalist. Um, you know, wildland firefighters have seen a lot in the last 10, 20 years. Um, the nature of fires and the intensity of fire behavior has really changed and, um, you know, the changes in weather and the, the growing length of the fire season, the dryness of our forests, um, the, you know, pests in the forest that have created a lot of dead fuel, all of those are changing the nature of wildfires. And so 
you know, talking to people who are on the front lines of those changes and um, who put themselves at a lot of physical and mental risk uh, became part of the scope of the book. Um, and and really some of the most interesting characters and people that, that I encountered in the course of reporting, um, super good people. And I was really grateful that they shared, you know, some of their stories with me for the book. Yeah, I mean, how would you generally describe the culture of of fire? And, and I assume there was a lot on fire suppression because I, I feel like that gets most of the funding and, and attention. That might not be true, but I feel like it is. But, yeah, how would you describe the general culture? Um, well, I think wildland firefighters are highly motivated, highly disciplined um, people who love the outdoors and actually really care about outdoor places. And so it's kind of an odd mix in a, in a way. There's, there's a lot of almost militaristic kind of discipline that's expected and, and in terms of like an organizational hierarchy in order to fight fires safely or to light fires safely. You know, everybody has to be very much um, part of a hierarchy and, uh, and so there's that aspect of it, but the reason why they're all there is often because um, people just want to work outdoors. They don't want to go into the office. And, and, and if you're, you know, a wildland firefighter, um, you're probably not spending a lot of time in the office. You're out every day digging line, sometimes sleeping in the dirt, you know, sleeping in a tent. You get two days off, um, 14 days on. It's really intense work, and so you have to kind of, love it um so yeah I, the book tries to really give a sense of what that work looks and feels like um i yeah in terms of describing the culture i just think it's a, a group of really highly disciplined motivated people who love the outdoors that's that's the best way i think i could put it off on the fly <laughs> yeah i would I would um, say that when I read your book, it reminded me in many ways of the culture of the Marine Corps infantry. Um, uh, people yeah. don't join the Marine Corps infantry to get paid well. You, know, you say they right. get paid in, sun, in uh, sunsets, right, the fire That's people? Right. And the infantry is the same way. It's not. We wouldn't say sunsets, but um, <laughs> right. you join because of some kind of strong belief because you just – it's. You know, if you were to do your hourly rate as an infantry, it would, it would be like, I think we did it once, it was less than three bucks an hour or less. But, you know, you do it because you love it. You love some aspect of it. Not all of it, right? But some a, a, a strong uh, aspect of it you love, at least some part. Yeah. Well, part of it is that crew mentality of being with a group of people that you kind of have to absolutely trust. Um, you know, it's... it's physically demanding and, and dangerous work but but historically like one of the really cool things about being a wildland firefighter was that it was seasonal work so you know you could get hazard pay and and over time even if you weren't getting a good hourly wage at least and and then your winters were spent like skiing or surfing or traveling and and doing all these other cool things and so you know that's kind of how it it, it used to be i think there's still some folks who do it that way but but the nature of the job has changed so much now that um it's really exposed how vulnerable wildland firefighters are to a lot of mental health issues physical health issues uh smoke exposure cancer rates 
um, and just how ridiculously low paid they are for for the kind of work that they're doing and the necessity of the work in the age that we're living in when you know fires aren't just burning in remote wilderness areas they're actually running into towns and you know taking lives and property and so wildland firefighters are are like more important than ever um and i think they also see that in order to do their work well and safely they need more fire on the ground under different weather conditions, right? Like not when it's just the hottest and windiest day of August, um, but also in the autumn and spring to sort of prevent these catastrophic wildfires um, from taking life and property. I forget, John. What was the uh, hourly rate of a freelance wildland firefighter? Basic wildland? 16? I think they told us 16 or 18. Yeah. Huh, yeah, yeah. It's not great. No, I... That actually almost sounds a little high to me, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds high. I mean, it, to me, it's very low when you compare the the danger. I mean, some of these slopes they're showing, you know, they, they show people suppressing fires on. Yeah, that stuff. I mean, <laughs> that's 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 something, man. You know, and some of these western fires, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, some of these guys were saying to me like the first years that they were working on the job, they never went into town. And now they're protecting homes and they're doing search and rescue after a fire blows through a community. And, you know, it's become a lot more of a mentally challenging occupation. You're seeing a lot of destruction. And um, I think that's part of the picture here is, is, is why they need to be compensated more and, and taken care of more. Um, you know, is just how much it's changed in even the last five, ten years. So, I mean, we talked a little bit in the beginning about, you know, how all these ecosystems are pyrogenic, these landscapes, these plants have grown mm-hmm. with fire. You know, at one point, Ryan and I took the the same training you did um, recently, so it's fresh on my mind. We talked, Ryan and I talked a lot about after classes, why not let some of these burn, right? You know, especially one, say there's nothing in the way. There's no, there's no property there's no towns for hundreds of thousands of acres potentially why not let that burn if that's the natural ecosystem it seems like the you know the the policy is to put it out suppress it at what point is the human life risk not worth it the value we put on it we were told that uh, i don't remember the number but fire is is reaching a pretty sizable number of gdp which is amazing to me yeah, it's such a controversial topic. I mean, I never met a wildland firefighter who was going to argue that if the community was at risk or, you know, there was some endangerment to something valuable that you, you should just let a wildfire burn. On the other hand, you know, we actually have what's called a fire deficit in this country because of 100 years of, of a policy of Essentially, you know, um, 100% fire suppression. You know, we put out, I think, 98% of of all wildfires. And because of that, there's actually millions of acres that should have burned and haven't. And so part of, you know, reducing that fire deficit is going to have to uh, involve not just prescribed burning, uh, not just forest thinning, which requires, you know, mechanical 
uh, treatments with chainsaws or machinery um, to reduce forest density, but also potentially managed wildfire. So the idea of just letting it burn isn't, you know, quite, I think it gives it a, a really bad and misleading kind of connotation. The idea is more, if you have a lightning strike in the wilderness area that's, you know, fire adapted and, and hasn't burned in a hundred years, can you create a sort of natural perimeter using ridges, roads, um, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of create a box um, that then you can let that wildfire burn within and get sort of the needed treatment. And and I think that's um, definitely, uh, according to the ecologists and scientists um, that I spoke to for the book, has to be part of the picture going forward. It's just, what's the public appetite? You know, um, can people, will people see the need for that approach? I don't know. I don't think they have the appetite for it right now. I tell you what, they said on the state, like Minnewaska State Park and the Casco Forest Preserve, if it was natural, let it go, right? Yeah. They didn't do it in Minnewaska, like, what was that, last year? That was a true lightning strike. Now, lightning strike right. fires in the Northeast are less than 2% of fires. This right. one was a true lightning strike, very rare, and burned um, above the ice caves, the true ice caves. And they still went nuts. <laughs> I mean, right. they, they put up, you know, I walked the burn, the burn line around that with the excavator and stuff where they did all that. It's just, it, they can't help themselves. They got to put it out. Yeah. They can't help well, themselves. Think, yeah. It's so interesting to um, for me to have been able to travel for the book and seen different fire cultures in different places. So, you know, in the southeast, it's, there's a just completely different approach. Like, I think in the book there's a quote from a guy who says there's just, like, bonkers levels of fire in the southeast, right? <laughs> and and yeah. the tolerance for fire on the landscape is so different. And I would say even like in a place like the Pine Barrens in New Jersey, they have a very different approach to to a fire, right? I mean, I think if it's in the summer, they're going to put it out. But if it's in the spring, they might let it burn because the Pine Barrens is a fire-adapted ecosystem. And there's been a relatively uninterrupted uh, culture around fire um, in that place for for a long time, so it's just so different depending on on where you are, like how people view this. But in the southeast, it's amazing. I mean, I was on a burn uh, on a school day that was like you know less than a mile from an elementary and a, <laughs> and a middle school, and parents are going to pick up their kids, and there's smoke in the sky, and nobody called. You know, the the fire department, no one called nine one one. It's just assumed like, okay, like they're doing they're doing work that needs to be done. Um and so I think that also shows there's this capacity for attitudes to evolve, you know, and and hopefully um this book and a lot of the work that uh indigenous communities and community like communities out west that are threatened by wildfire are doing is gonna expand the capacity and understanding of the public around the need for more fire on the landscape right um if you're just tuning in we're gonna take a break if you're just tuning in you're listening to from the forest every wednesday 6 to 7 p.m tonight's topic is ignition with author maura o'connor <laughs> Hey, 
I got a bad desire. Missing tonight's show, you're missing a good one. It's uh, Ignition with author Maura O'Connor on From the Forest. And uh, Maura, so you got a lot of experience on the fire line, and you wrote this great book called Ignition Lighting Fires in a Burning World. Where do you think we go from here, um, you know, with with prescribed burning and, and trying to uh, up the amount of fires, I guess? What do you think? Well, I think um, there's some really promising trends. Um, You know, some of it is uh, money that's being pumped into uh, protecting communities through things like the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Bill. Um, So there's some more resources being pumped uh, 
into trying to, you know, manage forests with not just prescribed burning, but also um, thinning as well, which is a really important part of the picture. Um, I was just at a fire ecology conference in Monterey with like 900 um, scientists and community leaders all coming together to talk about issues around fire ecology and a lot of prescribed burning um, stuff. And I think they'd expected like 500 people to be at that conference and they got almost double. And it just showed to me, you know, how much interest there is in this topic and how much motivation there is to to really develop the science um uh, increase the public understanding of, of fire ecology. And one of the coolest parts of being at that conference was meeting with people who are part of prescribed burn associations. So um, some of these have been around for a while, like uh, in places like uh, Kansas and Oklahoma, you have these, you know, maybe ranching communities where people come together and, and help each other burn grasslands. Um, but out west in the last, um, you know, five years or so, there's been a similar movement for communities to come together and, and start burning to protect, you know, um, those communities. And, and that was really cool to see. Um, there's this way that fire seems to bring people together. Uh, and it's uh, really interesting to see, you know, ranchers and hippies and kids and <laughs> you know people who 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 all share a sense of um concern and, and care for for these places and their homes and are working to to save them um so yeah i mean it's not to sort of minimize the hurdles that still exist um to paying down this fire deficit but i see a lot of positive momentum. I think the book I wrote is a pretty hopeful story, actually. I certainly am not trying to get onto the environmental uh, doom train. <laughs> uh, this, I think, is actually a bit of an antidote to some of that. Oh, man, it's easy to get on, let me tell you. It really is. <laughs> uh, the, the environmental, it's just, it's its hopeless. It, it offers right. hopelessness. It offers uh, no nirvana or heaven. It's just, we're going <laughs> to die and kill yourself. But, you know, the problem with me with fire is, is it, it comes, even though maybe all those thousand ecologists and stuff you went in California, you saw, maybe agree we need more fire. It has to battle first that culture that, to me, that's risk-averse. It goes right against American risk averse. I, th I feel like we're in the greatest time in America of being completely risk averse. We just don't know how to assess it. We've lost our ability to assess risk rationally. Right. Yeah, and I think risk is actually kind of at the heart of a lot of what I was thinking about as I reported the book because to me, fire sort of changes the calculus, right? So most people we we're raised to just fear fire like it's, it's a it's an element that represents danger um you know it's it's sort of hidden away in our stoves and our combustion engines and and we don't really engage with it directly um but i think what i was trying to point to is there's this whole other history of a relationship with fire um that negates some of that and what I wanted to ask was, you know, not what would happen if we 
light a fire, but what's going to happen if we don't light more fires? So just sort of change the emphasis in order to point out that not lighting fires comes with its own risk, too. Yeah. And we're seeing some of that in the way that, you know, paradise burned down and, and killed 85 people, you know, in the way that um, New York is getting socked in by by smoke in June, you know, uh, from the Canadian wildfires. We have to reexamine our relationship from fire and our relationship to risk um, because even if you just try to put everything out, that's not creating a safer future. How does burning look like in the East to you? Say we, say culture all of a sudden tomorrow decided the Northeast needs to burn. What's got to happen? What's going to look like 100 years from now, in your opinion? Oh, man. I think about this a lot, actually, (laughs) because the East presents a kind of tricky scenario. I think it's the area of the United States that has the greatest distance between its fire culture and today um you know the greatest amount of time um that has passed and so i think there's a lot of knowledge that's been lost i think the landscapes have really changed not just once or twice but you know several times and you look at the catskills and like the forest type and it's not just you know a generation ago it's like 400 years there's been so many different changes so the question is like John brought up before, like, what do we go back to and what are we trying to achieve, right, through fire? And I guess one of the things that really fascinates me is, one, this idea of losing open spaces and how fire could be used towards um, regaining some of that, and then also um, biodiversity in the forest. So how could fire potentially be used for oak regeneration, um, and trying to reverse some of this messification of the forest that is maybe um, not so great now, right? Like um, we're losing diversity, we're perhaps making forests more vulnerable to disease. Um, So that's, you know, to me, those are the two things that are really fascinating to me, but I'm not undertaking any direct research myself i am totally reliant on the scientific literature and the people who are on the ground trying to accumulate data about what that might look like and how you might achieve those goals through fire um but yeah i mean and i'm really interested in private landowners who might be trying to figure some of this stuff out themselves if you're listening and you're burning on your own land like please reach out to me i want to I want to interview you. I want to understand <laughs> yeah, that's how you're a tough using one. fire. In New York State, it's just about non-existent. Um, I guess Tyler Briggs, who you know, the fire boss up yeah. in Albany Pine Bush, he told me there's going to be one uh, in the southern part of the Hudson Valley. But it's so rare. And I feel like if we can't make it happen on private land, it can't happen. <laughs> it's got to happen on private land eventually. Uh, Pennsylvania moved in the right direction. They They passed some kind of... Um, liability protection if you have a burn plan for right. landowners. Um, it hasn't translated into more fires yet, but that's the first step, I feel. I met some folks in California at this fire ecology conference recently who said that Wisconsin is also a place that um, is about to have a lot more community burn associations and um, feels like 
things are changing there in terms of, of private landowners and communities coming together to burn. So I'm really curious, maybe that's a model um, that, you know, the East Coast could be looking to. But I, I will say that one of the, like, revelations of reporting the book was discovering places on the east, the Northeast that are burning. Like, New Jersey has a lot of fire. Uh, Albany Pine Bush, you know, anybody listening who hasn't been to the Albany Pine Bush, like, just go because it's incredible what they've done with fire. It's just amazing. And, it, and it's a national model. I mean, it really is outstanding. Yeah. Um, not just for New England, but for the nation. Uh, in New Hampshire, there's some a little bit of burning, experimental burning going on. And even in Maine. So there's more than, than we think. Uh, it's just about, as far as I can tell, creating this momentum and appetite for it and then building from, you know, a kind of grassroots infrastructure to enable burning to take place. And, and some of that might be legislative changes or liability you know, laws like you pointed out. Yeah, I mean, we legislated forest preserve in the past. We can we can do fire. That's all the time right. we have on tonight's show. More. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, I couldn't be happier to be able to talk to you and and uh, let's go out on a burn together soon. <laughs> all right. Hopefully, we'll see you on a prescribed burn sometime. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank all you. Right. Take, Take care. care. If you just missed if you just missed the show, that was uh, Maura O'Connor's great show. Um, Talk, got to get her on again and talk about fire. But that's all the time we have on From the Forest, and have a good night. Then the old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street. A dozen faces stopped to stare, but no one stopped to speak. his friend and the old man stumbled in from the forest up a dark and dingy staircase the old man made his way his ragged coat around him as upon his cot he lay and he wondered how it happened that he'd ended up this way Thank you.